Amen. All right. John 7, uh, 25 to 39, God's word says this. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Obviously, they're talking about Jesus, continuing from our passage last week. And here he is speaking openly. They say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ or the Messiah or the Savior? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears or the Savior, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, actually, literally, that word is cried out. He cried out to the people as he taught in the temple. So Jesus is at the temple in Jerusalem teaching, you know me, you know where I come from, but I've not come from my, of my own accord. Hear this. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. That's heavy. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and, the, and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37, pay close attention to this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. Again, the same word as proclaimed earlier, cried out to his people. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. If you don't remember anything else from this sermon, please remember that phrase. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I'm just warning you guys, this thing is loaded this morning. There's a lot of layers here, and uh, so for those of you who like to have an early lunch, today's just not your day, okay? It's just not in the cards for you. I'm sorry. So here we go. I'm excited to preach at this service because I don't have like a bookend at the nine o'clock where I had to really speed it up at the end. So uh, here we go. I'm unloading on you this morning. It's, it's, I've been studying it all week. I'm excited to get out what God has laid on my heart and what he's revealed through his word, right? Here's the thing. This passage screams Old Testament. It screams Old Testament. It proclaims it. It cries it out. We hear in this the language of living water, water flowing out. Jesus here, he's at the temple. He's in Jerusalem. We learned last week it's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or Tents or whatever word you want to use there. Uh, The Jews are celebrating. And here Jesus again, he's at the temple in Jerusalem. He's teaching and proclaiming and crying out. It just reminds us so much of so many different passages that we hear 
uh, in the Old Testament. Echoes of, of Zechariah 14, 8, and 9. On that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. It reminds me of Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. Notice the location. Behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was flowing down from below the south end, and it goes on and on and on about where the water flows out from the temple, right? Jerusalem and the temple, water flowing out. You guys get the picture? You got the picture? And so we're reminded of those passages, but to me, there's, there's a passage I love. On Wednesday night, I shared this in our prayer time. Nehemiah chapter 8, such a beautiful chapter where Ezra re- reads the law to God's people. It really, this passage kind of just came pouring out on me and into my mind as I was studied for this sermon for this morning. At that time, taking us back into the context of Nehemiah 8, at that time, Israel, after a long period of exile, sojourning in a foreign land, going through difficult times, they've, they've been brought back to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the walls. It's a great time of beautiful leadership by Nehemiah and Ezra, God's servants. The people of God in Nehemiah chapter 8, they've gathered together. Nehemiah 8, 1 says this, as one man, it says, into the square before. Now notice a location in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, at the water gate. Okay, we're not talking about some hotel from the 70s. We're talking about the water gate at the temple. Why was it called the water gate? Uh, the area was named because it was near the start of a, ton- a water tunnel fed by this, a fresh, natural spring of water. The Jews would have called that living water because it, it never dried up. Springs don't really dry up. They're just fed continuously. So living water flowed in this area at the water gate where Ezra is proclaiming the word of God to his people. The people are cut to the heart. They're joyous and they're crying all at the same time. It's just a really a beautiful, beautiful section of scripture. And this gathering of the people coincides in Nehemiah chapter 8 with the Feast of Tabernacles, which we found out last week is the time period that we're in. Fast forwarding now all the way to John 7. Are you guys connecting the dots with me? It's the same feast that's being celebrated. And it is there, going back to Nehemiah, it's there that Ezra read the scriptures to the people. Uh, There was other priests uh, placed around because the crowd was massive and they're preaching uh, the word of God to the people and helping them understand. They were explaining. The word of God cut them to the heart. They wept. They repented, meaning they changed their direction and praised God for his goodness and grace. Okay, along with that now, historically, tradition tells us that this festival, the the Feast of Tabernacles, also included each day a solemn pouring out of water, uh, reminding God's people of Zechariah 14 and Ezekiel 47, and we'll read this a little bit later, Isaiah 12. And this key piece of historic information will help us interpret this passage. You see all the water references here. And then Jesus closed out this section by saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Why? He's the living water. And so these these clues are going to help us to interpret this passage, understand Jesus' fulfillment of this festival and its significance for us some 2,000 years later. Like, what does this mean to us? Okay, this brings us to our main idea. Our main idea is this. Jesus is the living water poured out to save. 
Okay, here's the truth of the matter. I hope you get a lot from this sermon, but if you don't get anything else, I hope you understand this truth right here. That Jesus is the living water poured out to save. And so we're going to be working on kind of different layers this morning. Simple teachings like this, but we're also going to dig in theologically this morning. And hopefully we can grow within our minds and that helps our hearts to love Jesus more and more this morning, right? We all know this. Water is central to life, isn't it? It's central to life. When we get to like August, September in Kentucky, we enter into usually like a drought season. Now, I've only lived here for four years, but every year it seems like there's a drought, like August, September, it rains a ton, and then it just doesn't rain anymore for about six to eight weeks, okay? And all those precious plants that you have planted, uh, all the ornamental plants out there, they start to shrivel up because no amount of, for some reason, no amount of kind of artificial hand watering is going to make a difference, the 90-degree Kentucky sun beating down it just shrivels everything up. Guys, the, the, the lawn that you've cared for and you've put all these sort of chemicals on and you've trimmed it and you've Google searched how to keep it green and then the, the sun comes out, burns it up because there's no rain for weeks and weeks. It shrivels up and dies. You walk on it. It crunches under your feet, right? Water, why? It needs water. It needs rain. It needs a source of life. Water is a, is a fitting symbol of the spiritual work of renewal and filling that Jesus is bringing about through his earthly ministry. Just one piece of verse 37. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. The invitation of Christ to the crowd. Come to me and drink. Jesus' words should, should echo it as he preaches in the temple. It should echo throughout the minds and hearts of Jerusalem as he cries out, it says, Think about a mother in, in a, say you're in a shopping mall and it's all closed off, right? Inside, malls are kind of echoey and loud. It's, people actually shopped back at shopping malls back in the day. They didn't just order everything off of Amazon. So the, the malls like Christmas time used to be really, really crowded. And you got Johnny's hand and he takes off, right? Mom, what do you do? You start crying out for your children. I can hear Jesus's voice here crying out, crying out to his people, this, this cry and plea to them to come to him as the living water and to drink, to receive Christ, to receive salvation, to receive the gift that he has. It reminds us also of Isaiah 12, 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, right? I will place my faith. I will place my confidence and I will not be afraid. For the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Hear this now. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And with the backdrop of, of the Old Testament feast of tabernacles, the historic tradition of the priest pouring out water as a solemn sign of purification throughout the festival, we look at three ways that Christ is poured out in this passage. The first is this. We see the truth poured out through Jesus. Jesus pours out the truth on this crowd. Okay, here, here's the truth of the matter. We typically preach kind of verse by verse or passage by passage through Scripture here at this church. And sometimes the passages get disjointed, but this one is connected to last week's passage. It continues on. We cannot disconnect this from last week's message. The word works and connects together. Last week, Jesus reveals the source of his words. The source of his words is God the Father. Therefore, he says, 
Because of this source of truth that he has, he makes this statement, and it should hopefully ring a bell with you from last week. Jesus said, in him there is no falsehood. In him there is no falsehood. The words that Jesus speaks are true. Jesus then challenges all who can hear him at the end of last week's passage. He says, to hear with right judgment. Judge with right judgment. With those things in mind, in him there is no falsehood. Judge with right judgment. Listen to these words, verse 25 to 29. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, right? Or we could say the Savior or the Messiah there. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now I want to pause there because we might not know this disconnected some 2,000 years ago, but there were some historic traditions in this time among the Jews that believed that the Messiah's origins wouldn't be They wouldn't be known until he was revealed through his political or military might and overthrowing their enemies and reclaiming uh, God's land for his people. Now Jesus responds. So Jesus proclaimed, again, that word I believe should be translated cried out. Okay, he's crying out to his people as he taught in the, where is he at? The temple. here's Here's a little nugget for you. We'll unpack this a little bit later. God's true temple, Jesus, is in the temple. Jesus says this, You know me. You know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. Right? He's not self-appointed. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Right? And that's revealed in their not recognizing Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to pay attention to these three things here. He says, I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. I know him, I come from him, he sent me. The crowd here is now clamoring for answers. The collision of ideas is evident. Some begin to to speak out confusion in their man-crafted ideas of the Savior come to the surface. How can this be the Messiah? We, We won't even know where the Messiah comes from. We know that this guy is the son of the carpenter guy, some poor guy. How can he be the Messiah? They doubt also their own authorities, the the Pharisees, the priests, the teachers of the law. Confusion ensues. But Jesus clearly proclaims truth when he says, again, reminding us of, of that passage from last week, in him there is no falsehood. He conveys their misunderstanding of who he is and concludes that they must not know the Father if they don't know him. Okay, they must not know the Father if they don't know who he is. Then the the truth is poured out even further. Jesus again says, I know him, I come from him, and he sent me. This statement now, kind of thinking about church history, it it rings out throughout church history. A proclamation of of deep theological significance of the person and work of Jesus. We're going to get a little nerdy here, is that okay? Doctrine is important. And Jesus is making a crucial statement when he says, I know him, I come from him, and he sent me. 
Jesus is not just some random, you know, good guy who did some good stuff and was nice and a good teacher, and then he went and died. He's not some guy that just progressed and achieved deity in an earthly life as, say, like the Mormons claim. Rather, according to the word of God, he was and is and is to come. What does that mean? He's eternal. He knows the Father because he comes from him. He is the begotten of God. God the Father's unique, one-of-a-kind son for all eternity with the same, hear this, this is important, with the same divine nature as God. Okay? Simply put, Jesus is the same stuff as God. He is God. There was never a time when he was not. There never will be. Jesus has eternally existed and the Father, hear this truth, he and the Father are one, and yet they're distinct persons. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. This this is truth poured out because it can be difficult to wrap our minds around, and yet it is essential to our beliefs as Christians. We would say this is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. We believe that God has decreed and planned this moment from all of eternity for his glory. And Jesus now equates understanding his words with knowing the Father. Do you see the connection? I know him, I come from him, and he sent me. What's some application that we can draw from this first point? Okay, this is what Jesus is claiming here is a cornerstone doctrine of the Christian faith. Jesus and the Father are one the same substance, deity, and yet they are distinct. This is crucial to salvation. Jesus is not a created being. He's not the first creation of God. Instead, he has always existed in perfect unity and relationship with God the Father. And then Jesus, the conclusion he comes to is he said, Jesus says, you do not know the Father if you do not know this truth. He equated that connection to the Pharisees here and and everybody hearing. He's saying, if you don't understand where I came from, then you don't actually know who God is. Jesus is making this distinction. They don't know him, so they must not know the Father. Do you get how crucial this doctrine is to us? For us to believe in the right God, we have to believe that Jesus and the Father are one. The Son and the Father are one, and yet distinct. Point number two, we see in this passage that Jesus is poured out, right? He's going to speak of his pouring out. It's a, it's a foretelling of the work to come. Jesus is, I like to say this, he's kind of pulling the veil back a little bit and he's revealing some stuff that's going to be coming soon. Verses 30 to 36. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's important. Nothing's going to happen outside the will of God. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I want to pause there. What, what John is getting at, what the crowd is getting at is they're, they're saying like, this guy's done a lot of things. He's, he's done a lot of, John actually says at the end of his gospel, like if we actually wrote everything down, like nothing can contain the works of Jesus. 
And so it's apparent that there's a lot more that's gone on around the ministry of Jesus that's even, than it's even documented in the Gospel of John or other Gospels. So they've seen Jesus work in miraculous ways and reveal his power. Back into our passage. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priest and Pharisees. So basically they're the whole of Jewish representation. All their leaders sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. Right? He's foretelling now. I'll be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me, the father. Right? I'm going home. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Do you see the conclusion there from their unbelief right before? You can't come if you don't believe in, in the Father's decree and what he's done through me, what he's doing through me. Jesus says, you'll seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man, right, they just don't understand what he's saying here. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Okay, so there was Jews that had been scattered out into Gentile territory and teach the Greeks. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come, right? So misunderstanding here abounds among the leaders. Jesus speaks the truth, and the boldness of the leaders and the depth of their unbelief now becomes evident in their actions, why? They're now seeking, hear this, they're seeking to arrest God in the flesh, right? Jesus. The first statement, though, is so fitting. This should actually be very encouraging to us. It says The Bible says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Hear this. It's not his time yet. And hear this right here. No amount of external force can overcome the eternal decree, will, and plan of God. He's that powerful. Do you believe that? Nothing can overcome the will of God. Nothing can thwart his plan. God's not caught off guard. Then Jesus makes a provocative statement. He says, I'm only going to be here a little while longer, and then I'm gone, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, the, the Jews equate this to Jesus going to the dispersion, an area where Jews had scattered out to live among the Greeks. These were called, the, those Jews that went out and were scattered among the Greeks, they were called the Hellenized Jews. That's kind of the scholarly term that we use for them. They were Hellenized. These, these folks here thought that he would teach among Hellenized Jews and the Greeks. And, and here's the truth. This work will happen, but, but their timeline's not correct. It's not necessarily Jesus physically that's going to go out and do these things. This work will actually occur if we were to fast forward after the ascension of Jesus when the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. And at Pentecost, there were dispersion Jews present there. They could hear the, the gospel being preached in their own language. That's really what we mean when we talk about tongues, being able to speak in tongues, is that they could hear in their own language. It was a miraculous gift of God. And then they went back out among the Gentiles, the Greeks, and began to proclaim gospel out there and the church spread like wildfire they were calling to the lost to receive that living water of Jesus when they poured out the gospel among the nations but here in the present passage Jesus is really speaking to his 
upcoming amazing work of doing this, justifying sinners. They cannot come to where he's going. They cannot accomplish what he will accomplish. And in their unbelief, they cannot go to be with the father that they claim to know, but don't really know in the depths of their soul. Here's, let me put it simply this way. There's a, a clear dividing line is coming. Some are in and some are out. Belief, I'll put it simply this way. Belief in Jesus is the requirement for eternal life with God. If, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I hope you walk away with that, that you place your faith, trust, and confidence in his work. Belief in Jesus is the requirement for eternal life with God. As of now, the, the Jewish leaders in this passage, they, they don't have it. They don't believe them. And this is what actually Jesus speaks of in his going away. This is what's going to happen when he means he's going away. See, this is, he will, hear this, he will eventually be betrayed. He will be arrested. He will be accused and tried. He will be beaten and battered and bruised. He will drag the crossbeam of the instrument of his execution through the streets on his way to the hill of the skull. He will be fixed to a cross. He will shed his blood and cry out to the father whose face had turned away from his beloved son. Jesus will bear the shame and penalty of our sins, every single one of them. And he will die. And they cannot come where he goes because they do not believe in God's only son. They will not receive that which Jesus is going to pour out. He's going to pour out his blood at Golgotha. And so Jesus connects this work to the, to the imagery of, of water from, from Scripture. Jesus is living water poured out to save. I believe it's why he, he says here later on, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The actual literal word for heart there is belly. From his midsection. Now if we think about Jesus on the cross, where did they thrust the spear at? In his midsection, what poured out from him? The blood and what? Water. Flowed from Jesus. It's like these guys writing scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit or something. And so we're going to look at, at, at two ways this flows out. The first way is from him. It flows out from him, from Jesus. 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said. Now, we can't connect this, pat, this statement that he makes down to one scripture because, man, much of the Old Testament just screams out this truth. It says this, out of his heart, his belly, his midsection, from the core of who he is will flow this. Rivers, okay? Not just a stream, not just a puddle, but rivers of living water. And we can take this section in two ways. Jesus is obviously the, the living water poured out, and we, Christians, his people, are now his, his conduits of living water. Now, we're talking about water. What do we use to kind of move water along? Plumbing, right? We're the, <laughs> we're the plumbing of God. <laughs> Moving the water along. Poured out through our witness. 
I'll begin, I'll begin with Jesus. Jesus, this is, I mean, we're going to connect it back to temple now, this word temple. Jesus is the temple of God. It's why all the way back in John chapter 2, he can say, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He's talking about himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of temple in its most ultimate sense. Well, what is a temple? You might be thinking there's, there's temple imagery all throughout scripture. We see it all the way back in the Garden of Eden when, when God was dwelling amongst his people, Adam and Eve. That was a temple. It was a place where God's presence was dwelling. We see it in the tabernacle being moved around in the wilderness. God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle. God's presence was in the physical temple in Jerusalem. And now God's presence is among his people in the person and work of Jesus. He is the true fulfillment of the temple of God. God's dwelling place is with his people. His presence is with them. Jesus is God in the flesh among his people. Moreover, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic anticipation of the Messiah that would come and whom we could draw living water as Isaiah 12 says. He is the living water flowing. Where is he at? He's in Jerusalem, right? In in Zechariah 14.8. And he is the water issuing from below the temple threshold in Ezekiel 47.1. It just flows out of him. And it's unending. This is Jesus. Living water flows from him. Spiritual renewal and nourishment and life. It reminds me, there was a time in July of 2016 My family was extremely blessed. My mother-in-law took us on this huge vacation, like all-expense-paid vacation to Maui, Hawaii. You guys ever been to Maui before? It's the most gorgeous place you'll ever go to. And it it was a whole family, including my in-laws. That was all right. And we we participated in, there's an area called Hana in Maui. It's the most tropical place in Maui. It rains there like 364 days a year. And then the sun comes out and it's just vibrant green and and flowers, just stuff growing everywhere. It's beautiful. And so when you go to to Maui, you have to do the road to Hana and the road is super windy. Like when you come to some of the turns, you got to honk your horn because it's narrow. So you got to make sure that you're not going to run into anybody else coming the other way. And the locals there, they don't drive slowly. And so we make our way through. It was a really hot day. It was in July. It was 85, 90 degrees. Um, and again, that area of the island gets a ton of rain, so it was sticky and humid. Like, made us look like a dry desert here in Kentucky. So we would make stops along the, the roadside. There was different waterfalls. We jumped off of waterfalls and stuff to kind of stay cool and kept moving along, checking out the scenery. We ended up towards the end of that road. There's a state park to see there's like these famous seven pools that kind of feed into each other, big waterfalls at Kipahulu State Park. Now those being the main attraction, they were jam-packed. So we got there and I was like, okay, cool. It's too crowded. Let's go do something else. So we decided to venture off because there's a huge waterfall, Waimoku Falls, some 200, uh, 200, two mile uh, hike up kind of the mountain right behind this state park. A 400-foot-high waterfall. It's beautiful. And we were used to hiking. Now, let me remind you, this seven years ago. So I got, I got two kids. My son's 15 now. My daughter's 17. So they were, you know, 10, 7, 8-ish at the time. They like to hike too, but not that much. 
we were nearing the end of our day. It was getting kind of the, the end of our, our journey on the road to Hana. Our water supply was running a little bit low. I think we might have had one plastic bottle of Crystal Geyser water. We probably shouldn't have set out on that hike. But we thought we'd be fine. We do this all the time. So we started the trek, realized about a mile in that it was a steeper hike than we anticipated. The sun emerged after a rainstorm. The heat soared, right? There's these big, it's like a bamboo forest. They're hitting against each other. It was really cool, but it was hot. The kids are starting to whine. We ran out of water about halfway through. And so it's like, okay, do we turn around and go back or do we keep going? We should have gone back, but we kept going. Our our water at that time, that water bottle, we didn't have, it wasn't spring-fed. It wasn't an endless supply. Like the plastic water bottle, once it dried up, it was done. Eventually, though, we made it up to the falls. As we turned the corner, hot, tired, wanting to turn back, kids whining, the glorious sound of an endless supply of water was presented to us. Again, falling some 400 feet from the top of this mountain down and crashing into the pool below. And we were hot, sticky, tired. There was big old barricades, told us not to go in the pool at the bottom, but we just got, went over the top of those and got in the water. Father, forgive us for breaking rules. <laughs> we ignored the barricades, jumped in the pool, relieving our sun-scorched skin. We swam to the falls and stood up on a rock near the fall. Now water coming off from 400 foot above, it comes down with quite an impact. And so we kind of scooted over along that ledge and started going under the weight of the water as it hit upon us wave after wave after wave. And we were thirsty and we just opened our mouths and drank out of the waterfall and filled up our water bottle. And we were relieved. We were rejuvenated, right? And the water, like this waterfall never runs out of water. It's never exhausted. It's constantly poured out. It's just like Jesus, our living water. Seeking him out, filling his his refreshing water, pour over us and rejuvenate us and get us ready for the journey back. Filled up our water bottle. We started to journey back down the trail, refreshed and ready to keep going. As we made our way back down, there were other hot and tired families coming up the trail. What did we tell them? Keep going. The water's just right down the trail. And do yourself a favor, jump over the barricades and get in the water. (laughs) And so we understand that Jesus is the source of living water, but our witness in a sense as we came back down that trail was to point them to the source of living water. And so in a way, living water was pouring out of us. And so we see living water from us as well, from us. I want to fast forward a little bit to Acts uh, chapter 4. We see the work of God's people now. This, let's put this in the timeline. Jesus says he's died, he's resurrected, he's ascended to heaven. Spirit's been poured out in Pentecost. God's people are going out. They're crying out. They're proclaiming the gospel. They're facing persecution and judgment and a lot of pushback. And then in Acts 4, 29 to 31, it tells us this. And now... Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all what? 
boldness while you stretch out your hand to do these things, to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, right? The source of living water. We're just the plumbing, the conduits for it. And when they had prayed, this is so cool. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God quietly. No. With boldness. It's how living water flows through us. Through the power of the Spirit, speaking the truth, the word of God, boldly. Lastly, through the work of Jesus, the promised Holy Spirit has been poured out. Jesus poured out truth. He himself was poured out. He shed his blood for us. And in, at the end of this passage, John makes a comment saying that this is pointing to the coming of the Holy Spirit that will come when Jesus is glorified. We have to remember the overarching aim of this gospel. John is writing to discouraged and persecuted churches. He wants them to keep going, keep persevering, keep holding fast to the truth about Jesus. And for those who are in among these churches, as this letter is read out loud, who are in unbelief, who don't know Jesus, so that some may come to know the saving power of Christ, to receive his living water and the gift of his Spirit, John 7, 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit of God has indeed been poured out. On the day of Pentecost, thinking about Peter, an apostle of Jesus, backing up into Acts chapter 2, the Spirit's been poured out. This man who was once a coward denying his Savior now boldly proclaims the gospel. And he's dropping some truth bombs in this preaching. It's a tough, tough passage, tough teaching. But the Spirit is powerful and it's pouring forth from him like living water. Acts 2, 32 and 33 says this, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, right? They were witnesses of the resurrected Christ, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. They were perplexed. What is going on? How come we can hear the gospel in our own language? Why are these men so bold in proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, the resurrected King? Because they've, the Spirit's been poured out, and they've witnessed Jesus resurrected. And they've been transformed. They're no longer cowards. They're no longer weak, but they're bold witnesses of Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. It's not because of any boldness that I have. I don't stand up here yelling at you and sweating every Sunday because I want to. It's because God's Spirit has filled me. So how do we respond? Our solemn response, we see. Thinking again to the Feast of Tabernacles, there was, at the end of each day, there was water poured out. Thinking back to Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9, God's, God's people had a, we, the, the scriptures talk often about a solemn assembly. What happened in the solemn assembly? Simply put, 
people repented. They confessed sin. In the modern church, we avoid that word like the plague. Sin and repentance. It's such a beautiful word, though. It's such a beautiful act that shows that we're calling upon Jesus as the living water. What's our solemn response? I know you guys want me to get into this big old long extended thing. Here's our response to this. Repent and believe. It's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. Peter continuing on in his, his address, the, the people begin to question and ask, the Bible says, now when they, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, who was proclaiming the word of God and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? My hope and prayer this morning, if, if you are in here and you don't know the saving power of Jesus, that right now that you would call out or think in your head, what shall I do? Peter tells him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. This is what happens for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can't put it any more clearly than that. What does repentance mean? We don't use that word much. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way simply. Repentance is when we change our view of ourselves. Instead of walking in my way, I change my view to walk in God's way. I follow after Christ. Here's the other thing, Christian. You may say, well, I've repented and believed. I don't need to do that anymore. Repentance is a continual act of our faith. We are constantly repenting and following after Jesus. We're saying, I'm changing my direction and my will and what I selfishly want, and I'm following after the living water of Jesus. Amen.